I want us to begin our time this morning by thinking about the doctrine that was introduced to us last Lord's Day as we were together, and that being the doctrine of partiality. The doctrine of partiality, or more specifically from the text in Romans chapter 2, the doctrine whereby there being no partiality with God. If you have your Bibles, you can open them to Romans chapter 2 as we continue our study of this great book. We ended our study last Lord's Day at verse 11. So this morning, I, I want us to continue on based upon what Paul introduces to us in verse 11, which is that doctrine, the doctrine of partiality which is negated in the mind of God. There is, as Paul states in chapter 2 and verse 11, there is no partiality with God. This is a very, very important doctrine for us to understand. It is a very important doctrine for us to have in our minds when we think about God and when we think about God's view of mankind. For God, there is no partiality. And specifically in the context of chapter 1 and 2 of Romans, God is not partial to anyone when it comes to His judgment of them. This is the cry of humanity, that they want God to be fair. That they want God to to do with them, really, in reality, how they do with others as they define their fairness. God is not partial. All will be judged according to the fairness of God. And verse 6 tells us all will be judged according to His deeds. This is a very important reality because your judgment before God will not be based upon how God sees someone else. It will be based upon how you are personally, individually, by yourself, before a holy God. This may seem like a very small point in some of our minds. Why? Because we can get ourselves to the place where we believe that we have a fairly good grasp on the simplicity of this doctrine as people. What I mean by that is that many people do seem to understand this doctrine. They seem to understand the reality of that word, partiality, because through interactions with others, particularly with interaction with those who do not know Jesus Christ by faith, who are not Christians, that is, unbelievers, it is obvious that there is a clear lack of understanding concerning partiality or the lack of it when it comes to God. And as deeply misunderstood as it is in the pagan world, in the godless world in which we live, those who are unchurched, those who are irreligious, those who do not believe in Jesus Christ, that would be the godless world that I'm referring to. I believe that it's even more so misunderstood or just simply ignored, frankly, by many in evangelicalism, many who are churched, 
You say, well, why do you say that, Pastor? Why do you say we don't understand, or many don't understand this whole doctrine of partiality? Because, because I continue to hear the cry of so many when speaking to them about the judgment of God or interacting with the subject of God's judgment upon people, here's what they say. How can a good God allow so many good people to have bad things happen to them? Especially innocent people. This idea shows a lack of understanding of the doctrine of partiality. Because as much as many hear that question, and on the surface it can be a very good question. Underlying it is a cry that God is just not fair. Underlying it is the reality that God deals with people in an unfair way. That God's dealing with men is just not as it ought to be. It is not fair in any kind of way because a loving God surely would not allow bad things to happen to good people. A loving God would not allow those kinds of tragedies to take place if God truly was the loving God. A good God, in fact, would not eternally punish a people who do not deserve punishment, who are good people, who are morally good people, who are upstanding citizens within a community, who... Do good things. Good people just do not deserve to be punished by God. And if that is the kind of God, and I have heard somebody say this to me, if that is the kind of God that the Bible speaks about, then they say, I want nothing to do with that kind of God. That is the cry of our day. That is, in fact, the cry of many within evangelicalism. There is a deception in the minds of many concerning God and His very character. Which seems rather strange because this is exactly how the Bible describes God. It is a cry from people for the overarching benefit of God's love. In other words, if God is loving, His love must override everything else of His very character or it is not the God that we want or the God that we believe to be the true God. And the world is correct in thinking that God will and does operate according to divine love. We would believe that. We would even say that, that God operates according to divine love. In fact, 1 John even says that, that God is love. God is love, and therefore His actions are Born out of his very nature, his very character, he operates according to divine love. But sadly, the world and many who are linked to evangelicalism, who even claim to be saved, have wrongly and deceptively defined love as the outworking of partiality. That partiality is defined by the love of God, and because God is love, therefore God must be in some way partial to people. And in Romans chapter 2, the Apostle Paul anticipates that kind of argument from his own people, the Jews. 
through what he has said concerning the judgment of man, through the indictment that he has brought in Romans chapter 1 concerning the wrath of God that is against all men, that all men are in fact guilty before God, Paul anticipates the cry from the Jew or from the religious or from the moral person that that is unfair, that all people could be guilty before God. It is screaming out, Paul is anticipating, from the lungs of those who truly believe that they can, in fact, because of their own morality, because of their own religiousness, because of their own way of keeping themselves better than everybody else, they can actually stand unpunishable before a holy and just God. Because they have defined their standard of justification. And this is what Paul anticipates. And so his argument then to us has been in no uncertain terms that there is no partiality with God. And we have gone through several reasons as to why God is in fact justified in declaring all men to be guilty. His wrath is identified as being revealed in chapter 1. And yet when you come to the moral people, those who consider themselves to be good already, those who consider themselves to be upstanding citizens and therefore deserve no judgment, we have, we have learned several reasons as to why God is justified in His judgment of even those who believe they don't deserve it. And now we're, we get to the fourth reason. The fourth reason as to why God is justified in His judgment. And the reason is just that. Because God is impartial. Because God is impartial. See, it wouldn't be justified if God was not partial. If He, if he was, in fact, uh, showed some partiality to people, it would be not justified because then some would be getting punishment and some others would not be getting punishment. But, but the fact of the matter is God is just in His judgment of all people, including those who are morally upstanding people, because God is not partial. He is impartial. God is justified in His wrath and judgment of each person because, as we learned earlier, man's flagrant hypocrisy Every person who says they don't do those certain things that we listed in verses 28 through 32 of chapter 1, I don't do them, and Paul says, but you're without excuse too because you're a flagrant hypocrite because you actually can judge somebody else's standard. You can judge them by your own standard, but you never look at your own selves. You know that if God judges, certainly His judgment is according to truth, and certainly a judgment's going to fall on you too. So quit being the hypocrite and point the finger at yourself. Put yourself in the same group. You're going to be judged as well. Your flagrant hypocrisy justifies God's judgment. Your self-deception concerning His mercy justifies His judgment of you. You believe that all the goodness in your life has everything to do with you and not simply is the virtue of God's mercy upon your life. Verses 4 and 5 clearly showed us that. And then we looked last week at the motives of man's heart. 
the reality is that you will be judged according to your work. God sees exactly what produces that. A bad root always produces rotten fruit. In other words, you're the only ones whose deeds are going to pass the test of God's judgment are those who continually seek for God's glory, those who continually ask for honor before God based upon the reality of His honor, and those who in the body of sin want that sin swallowed up by immortality. It is those who will pass the testing of God's judgment. And the reason reason their deeds will pass the judgment of God is not because of them, but because their deeds are done through the power of the Spirit by way of relationship with Jesus Christ. Of course, Paul hasn't even dealt with that reality yet. We've interjected that here because we know that to be true from the rest of Scripture. Paul will get to the issue of salvation. Right now, he's talking about judgment. And so Paul clearly is saying that if you're going to pass the scrutiny of God's judgment based upon your works... If you're going to pass the scrutiny of God and stand before God on your deeds, which all men will, guess what? If you're going to pass that on your own, your deeds are going to have to be perfect without fail in any kind of way. Why? Because God's judgment is always according to truth. God's judgment is unbending. Your deeds will be judged by Him as the standard. He will be the standard. It's interesting. I'll just show you this in a couple places. Go back to Matthew chapter 16 for a moment because we think, huh, how's God going to do this judgment? Well, He's going to do it by means of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the one who will judge. Notice Matthew chapter 16 and verse 27, for the Son of Man is going to come in the glory of His Father with His angels and will then recompense, that is pay, that is give to every man according to his deeds. Jesus Christ is the one who will meet that out. Turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. We've studied through 1 Corinthians already, but just by way of reminder to us, 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Paul talking about the church and the building up of the church. He says, now he who plants and he who waters are one, but each will receive his own reward, that is his wage, according to his own labor. In other words, your works are going to be judged. Remember in 1 Corinthians, the Christian. And you're going to stand before Christ, and what is good and glorifying and honoring to Christ is going to be remain, and what was done with a heart that did not have that as its desire will be burned up, wood, hay, and stubble. Why Paul can say even in chapter 4 and verse 5, Therefore do not go on passing judgment before the time until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the things hidden in the darkness and disclose the motives of the heart. And then each man's praise will come to him from God. Our lives are going to be measured before a holy God and see this all the way even to the end in Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2. Verse 23. Talking about the church in Thyatira. 
He says, I will kill her children with pestilence and all the churches will know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts and I will give to each one according, each one of you according to your deeds. This is Jesus Christ doing the judgment. And so when Paul refers to the judgment of God in chapter 2, verse 5 of Romans, that's what he's talking about. Jesus Christ, God giving Jesus Christ the authority to judge. And so the fourth reason why God is justified in His judgment of even the morally good is because there is in Him no partiality. He is not partial to anyone. That means that God cannot be bought. It means that God cannot be bribed. God in His perfection and in His wisdom and in His character cannot be convinced against Himself. And He cannot be leveled against Him. It cannot be leveled against Him that He is being unfair. Even though, ironically, man's cry is for God to be fair. Ironically, they want God to be fair. And guess what God will be? Absolutely fair. Absolutely fair. And therefore we have His answer to that cry. He is not partial to anyone. He will be absolutely fair. This is a great word, by the way, in the original language. Prosopolemsia. Prosopolemsia is the word. And it means simply favoritism. Or we use the word prejudice sometimes. The word prejudice. Or it really... To raise a face to is the idea. To raise a face to. And sometimes we think of prejudice in a negative way. When someone is prejudiced, they have a negative idea towards something else. But when a person shows prejudice toward one thing, guess what's happening in the opposite direction? If you want to have prejudice on the negative side, when you're prejudiced towards some one thing or, or against that one thing, then you're showing favoritism toward another one. In the human realm, we practice that often, often to our shame, actually, because we're far too often look at the outside. We look only at the outside, and we practice a partiality toward things. In other words, we tend to give consideration to a person because of who they are outwardly. In a sense, we are biased in some way. We even see this play in our legal system. I was thinking about this the other day. Our law courts have tried to protect against the idea of, of partiality in the human realm. We've tried to do this. If you've ever been to a courtroom, you may have noticed within most courtrooms, if not all, there's a statue of a woman typically holding scales. They call those the scales of justice. We like to refer to that. But, but if you've ever looked at the woman, it's interesting. My wife and I, Several years ago, I had the opportunity to go down to the Supreme Court room in the capital of Pennsylvania. I was potentially going to go for a ministry to the, cap to the legislators in the capital of Pennsylvania. We went down there and visited. And there was a statue in the room. And she's called by, interestingly enough, the woman of justice. That's what she's called. And over her eyes, there's a blindfold. A blindfold over this woman's eyes. And the, the idea is a symbolism. Symbolism that the statue of justice cannot see who is standing before them in judgment. 
they stand there with impartiality. There is a, a, a blindfold over their eyes. They are impartial, never tempted toward partiality with the scales of justice. That's the idea. We have that as a system in our law system. And that's a great concept for a system. But a system that is run by men, men are all partial in some way. So our justice system and every justice system ever known to man needs some kind of outward rule of restraint. It needs something else to hem it in because the tendency of our heart is to be partial. So men, even in their wrongness, have created a system of law in which restrains their partiality or hopes to restrain their partiality. It's man's tendency. It's our tendency to be unfair rather than fair. But it's just the opposite with God. Because when it comes to the day of judgment before God, all will be judged according to perfect impartiality. There will be absolutely no partiality. It won't matter how educated you are. It will not matter the popularity that you have among people or how many enthusiastic thumbs up you've got across the globe on Facebook. None of that will matter. It will not matter as it did in the days of Israel when Israel chose a king and they looked at the outside and they saw Saul and he was such a great and glorious guy. I mean, he was the the Adonis kind of man. They wanted him. He had the stature of a man, the beauty that they ought to follow. It was not like that before God. Why? Because God is not partial to any of those things. The cry of unfair will not be sustained in the courtroom of our holy God. Paul described to the Galatian believers in Galatians chapter 6, verse 7, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. That term mocked, by the way, is an interesting term. The verse, it means to turn your nose up at. God will not, by anyone, have them turn their nose up at God. You probably have seen that in your own children from time to time. You give them a command, the potential consequences that might come from that command if they do not do what you ask. They turn their nose up at it. That's mocking. They're turning their nose up at what you say, deceiving themselves into thinking that you really don't mean what you say. And guess what happens, sadly, to much, much, many of us? We actually don't mean what we say. We've taught them that. We don't apply exactly what we said we were going to apply by way of judgment. We are partial. And we actually contribute to their deceived belief that God will operate just like we do. This is exactly what Satan did in the garden with Eve, isn't it? We know it. We read it. We go to the first book of the Bible in Genesis and we read it. Eve, here's what he said. Surely you will not die. Satan was turning his nose up at God. Surely. That's not what God meant. 
He's mocking God. And Eve allowed herself to be deceived into that same idea. Surely I will not die. Surely God didn't mean what he said. Surely his command was wrong. Surely he will be partial to me. God isn't telling you the truth, Eve. He's not telling you the whole story. He doesn't want you to be like him. Satan put God in a bad light. That has happened now. Mankind paints God in a bad light and they paint Him with the brushstroke of love. God is only love. Don't believe that He's got judgment. Don't believe that He's got wrath. Don't believe that He'll actually judge you. He's love. And by our redefined and refined definition of God, mankind has mocked God. Turn their nose up at Him. Simply because we actually believe that just because we live a certain way or because we go to church or because we go to Mass or we've been baptized or we're ignorant of what the Scriptures say, maybe it's because we never had a Bible. God's not going to judge me. I've never had a Bible. I never owned a Bible. guilty before God. Well, the Apostle Paul was here to set the record straight. Not only for his countrymen, but for all of us. He's not simply just talking to the Jews. He's talking to all of us. The Spirit of God is speaking here to us. And while God is impartial, His impartiality, get this, this is where His impartiality comes in. His impartiality takes into account the different spiritual light that you have been given. God is not going to judge you according to the spiritual light that He gave to somebody else. He's going to judge you according to the spiritual light and privilege you have been given. And the point that Paul is striving to make with his Jewish brothers and sisters in Christ is that they have even more accountability before their holy God because they have the written Word of God. Every time you and I, listen, every time we sit under the teaching of the Word of God, every time we open the Scriptures, every time we're challenged by somebody else, every time we talk about it, we have an increased responsibility to it. more we grow in the knowledge and grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the greater our responsibility to it. And the principle that is being shown here by the Apostle Paul is that God in His judgment, in His impartiality is going to take all of that into full account. Is it any wonder that James said, let not many of you be teachers? Everything that you know, everything that you say, everything you've heard, you will be held accountable for. He will be perfectly fair. God will be perfectly fair. And He will be perfectly just. And it will be perfectly right. 
Now, if you're here this morning and that does not affect you, have somebody check your pulse. It is a very dangerous thing for us to say, Lord, Lord, have we not done such and such in your name and yet not live according to it? It's a very dangerous thing to find yourself in Matthew chapter 7 and say, but Lord, the day of judgment, didn't I do this in your name? Didn't we say this in your name? Didn't we even cast things out in your name? And Jesus say to you, yeah, but I never knew you. True salvation, listen folks, true salvation is not summed up in justification only. True salvation is also seen in actual sanctification that is reflected in a life that is lived by faith and seen in obedience to the Word of God. So the remainder of chapter 2, Paul is contrasting two types of sinners. Two types of sinners. One group. It's all sinners. And here's the contrast of the sinners within it so that the Jews get it highlighted in their mind so that the moral person gets it so that those who have the Word of God get it. Those who have not had the privilege to have the written law of God And those who are so privileged to have the Word of God. That's who Paul's contrasting here. Sinners. This is what Paul means. He's trying to get across the idea that God will take into account the varying degrees of spiritual light that God by His grace has given to all men and He will judge them according to that without partiality. So the immediate question that ought to be in our minds is this. If God is going to judge according to the light we have been given, what am I doing with that light, number one? But also, does that mean that some will pass the judgment of God without knowing Christ? Does that mean some will pass the judgment without knowing Christ? I mean, think about it. This is the age-old question that comes up. Will those people on that island in the middle of the vast oceans of the world who have very little, if any, spiritual light come to them, who have never seen a Bible, who have never heard of Jesus Christ, who do not have the written Word of God, will they not be found unguilty before God? If not, isn't God unfair? This is who Paul is speaking about, really, in verses 12 through 16. Those who do not have God's written standard. He's speaking about the Gentile world, really, at large. Those really that he spoke of in chapter 1, they're all guilty because the wrath of God is revealed against all men, and yet the Jews are going, well, gosh, why would God judge them? That seems rather unfair. And Paul is using them to indict the Jews and say, listen, don't think you're better off. He's going to get to those, the Jews specifically, in the, in the following verses, in verses 17 and following, where you see, but if you are have the name Jew... 
and you rely upon the law and you boast in God. You see, that's the moral person. That's the religious person, the person who has the Scriptures sitting on their lap right now or on their electronic device or 500 different times in different ways that we have it in America. But right here, he's talking to those who don't have that. He says they're guilty. Those who do not have the written law of God. In Paul's day, that was every other nation other than Israel. They didn't have the written law of God. He's talking about those in our day who don't have it. They don't have the written word of God. Those who do not have or have never seen the scriptures. This is who he's talking about. They will be judged as guilty before God. Yes. Why? Look at verse 12. Because, or for, there's no partiality in God, for all who have sinned without the law will in fact perish without the law. In other words, they will be judged according to the spiritual light they have. And I'll show you that here in a minute. They don't have the Word of God. God's not going to use that to judge them. He doesn't need to. All who have sinned under the law will be judged by it. Remember, Paul is addressing those who have the Word of God. He's talking to Jews now. He's he's indicted the entire Gentile world, and yet he wants to, to get his Jewish brothers, the religious of his day, he wants them to understand that they're no better off. He's addressing those that have the Word of God. That's what he means by the word law. He's showing them that it isn't what you have, It's not the the privilege you have that's on trial here. That's not what God's judging you according to. What's on trial here is your sin. That's what's on trial. Your sin. When Paul says law, he's talking about the Word of God given to the nation of Israel, given to them through Moses, through the prophets. Particularly the five books of Moses, the first five books, the Torah. That's the law. Those without the law are the Gentiles. So when he says in verse 12, for all who have sinned without the law, that's the Gentile nation. It's not that they are not ignorant of God. It's not that they're ignorant of Him. Right? God has made Himself known. They, they know of God because God made Himself evident to all men. Chapter 1, verse 19. Everybody knows of God. It doesn't matter if you deny it or not. It doesn't matter if you've convinced yourself that there is no God. The fact of the matter is God made Himself known to you. And if you deny that, you're just suppressing that truth in unrighteousness. The fact that you're denying it shows that you're unrighteous. Everybody has an understanding of God. They have a sense, because of that, of right and wrong. Let me say it another way. In order for you to be a lawbreaker, you must be, or there must be a law for you to break, right? If you're going to be a lawbreaker, you've got to have a law to break. In other words, if public littering is the law, if you can't throw things out 
of your car in public or just walking down the road. It's called public littering. You, if that's not the law, you can go anywhere in the world. You could go anywhere in the country. You could go anywhere in the town. You could throw whatever you wanted anywhere. Nobody could really do anything about it because there's no law against that. You don't receive a fine if you do it. It would be, in fact, the norm of society. We would live in a trash heap. But because there is a public littering law, if you litter, you can be punished according to the law. That deals with somewhat of the outward reality, that written law. But God, in his wisdom and in his divine nature, has made it so that every man has a knowledge internally of him. Every human ever born, ever breathing, ever walked in the face of the earth has an internal reality concerning God. Laws deal with the external action, but internally is what God is seeing. And all men have an awareness of God. They have a sense of right and wrong. I don't care what society you go to. I don't care if you go to the jungle on that island where nobody's ever had a Bible. There is a sense in that island of a moral system. It may not be your moral system. It may not be the system you agree with, but it is, in fact, a moral system. They have a set of right and wrong. You can't just do whatever you want. You know where they got that? From God. From God. God has written a sense of right and wrong upon all hearts. It may be a twisted sense, Because that's what sin does. Sin takes what God has written about him and twists it in that. In other words, it may say that murder is okay. But it is a sense of right and wrong because that's what sin, or that's what God has given us. And even though sin distorts all that, there's still a sense of that. That doesn't go away. In fact, Proverbs tells us that it is to guard your heart with all diligence. Why? Because out of it flows the wellsprings of life. Guard your heart. Be careful to watch over your heart, the very your very inner man, because from that is where life is lived. That's why it so bothers me when I hear all these techniques for behavior modification only deal with the external issues. Listen, we don't. I, I, the fruit will change if you change the root system. So what that proverb is speaking about is the inner man, who we are on the inside, the outworking of our conscience, that which produces how we live and what we say and what we think. It is at that place that God has written a knowledge of Him. That's what Romans 1 is saying. God made it evident to them because God made it evident within them. So when you look at creation and you see the divine attributes of God, His divine nature and eternal power, you have a sense of there is a God. And you know that to be true by your very innate reality because God put it there. And because of that, every man is required by that understanding to acknowledge God. To acknowledge the Creator. 
And they call it something different. I mean, Paul walks into Athens in Acts chapter 17, and he says they got a statue to every god they've ever thought they ever had. And they even have one to one to an unknown god because, man, we don't want to forget about the ones we've forgotten about or never known about. And Paul says, well, listen, let me tell you about the unknown god. I'm going to tell you about the god. The one you don't have any statues to. We all have that understanding, and we have a responsibility to acknowledge God and then to seek for Him. Even though our sin doesn't want us to do that, as we'll see in chapter 3, there's no one who seeks for God. Man has refused to do what Paul is describing. Even those who do not have the letter of the Mosaic Law will be judged by the knowledge of God that they have. God will not judge them for not knowing the Mosaic Law. But He will judge them for not acknowledging Him. He will judge them for the application of the system of right and wrong, even a flawed system of right and wrong, that proves that they know God. Their application of that proves it. And that's part of what Paul was saying in the first verses of this chapter. Oh, you're without excuse too because you have a system of right and wrong. And by your system of right and wrong, you judge somebody else. You know God. And you're going to be judged by that knowledge. And so when it comes to God, everybody's on equal ground. You cannot stand there and say, well... This guy has the Word of God and I don't have it. Therefore, I can't be judged. Everybody's on equal ground. God's not going to judge you according to that. God's going to judge you according to what He did give you. And He gave you a knowledge of Himself. Notice what verse 12 says. All those who have sinned without the law, that is the Mosaic law, the Word of God, will perish without that law. They'll be judged according to what they know. And those who have sinned under it, those who have it, who knew the law and yet didn't do the law, they're going to be judged by that very law. There is complete impartiality. What a wonderful thing. God will, in fact, be fair. And so the real issue that Paul is getting to is this. Every person, we are all swimming in a cesspool of sin. All of us. Sin is the issue here. It doesn't matter whether you think you're more savable simply because you have God's Word than the guy who doesn't have God's Word. The fact still remains that you are still in a cesspool of sin. And all of those who are found to remain in that sin at judgment will be thrown into outer darkness without partiality to what you may have attached to your own very life. Isn't that? If your righteousness has anything to do with you, then you are deceived and you will perish. To whom much is given, much is required. Paul says to his Jewish brothers in verse 12, all who have sinned under the law will be judged by that very law person who has not been given or seen God's word will be judged by what God has shown him, what God has given to him. 
through his creation, through what he has shown every man. But to those who have been given the word of God, God will judge them according to that greater knowledge. You see, with greater knowledge comes greater responsibility. Some of you might even be saying here sadly this morning, I wish I hadn't come today. With greater responsibility comes greater culpability, doesn't it? I mean, we open the Word of God and we read the Word of God and we hear what God says and we go, yes, Lord, yes, Lord, yes, Lord. We close the Bible and walk off and do disobedient things that we know we should not do. We hope, we pry, or we we play with ourselves and convince ourselves that God simply will just be gracious. True, he will be, but he will be completely fair according to truth. Notice what Paul goes on to say in verse 13, for not the hearers of the law are just before God, but the doers of the law will be justified. You see, it will be no good to say at judgment, but I have the word of God and I read it daily. Be no good just to say that. He isn't again saying that you can be justified by doing that daily, that you somehow can can link your justification to that. If you want to attain righteousness that way, remember you have to be perfect. You have to never fail in one small part. If you want an illustration of that, go to Luke 10, the, the parable that we all like to go to when we want to give things to people, the Good Samaritan. Remember, Luke chapter 10 is based upon Jesus' words with a lawyer who says, How can, what can I do to be justified? Jesus says, what's the law say? In other words, if you want to live according to the law, you better be perfect. And he says, well, I've done all that. What must I do now? And Jesus gives him the illustration of the Good Samaritan. He says, now you go and do the same. The guy goes away with his head dropped down because he knows He's failed at that so many times. See, what Paul is saying here is don't think that just because you have the Word of God that it is good enough. That's what he's saying to the Jewish people. Don't think because God chose you and God gave you His Word personally that you have the written Word. Don't think that that is good enough for you. You see, that's what the Jews believe. They, they believe that because they had been God's chosen people, because God had chosen them to receive His Word, that they had some special place in His favor when it came to judgment. Paul is saying that has never been the case. It's not the hearers of the law that are just before God. It is the doers that will be justified. You say, well, what is he saying? Well, here's what he means. He's saying this to the Jews. The law of God, that is his written word, what you have and more so on your very lap right now, was given to you not to be simply contemplated, not to be just discussed in circles of higher theology. No, it was given to you so that you might obey it. Therefore, don't treat it like someone who goes to a college class and just audits the course. 
Don't treat it like that. Don't go to the Word of God like a college course that you're auditing where you go and you just don't want the credit because you don't want the accountability to complete the work. No, don't, don't treat the Scriptures like that. They're, they're simply not the hearing kind of information. You're not going to be judged on hearing it. You're going to be judged on doing it. God's eyes, there are no spiritually auditing in His school. It's not happening. You cannot just be a hearer of the Word. It's a very dangerous thing to do. Only to those who heed His Word are the ones who prove to be right with God in their heart and those who are justified before Him. Listen, it's very dangerous. The person who is satisfied with the superficial hearing of God's Word and yet they have no desire or passion for obedience to God's Word. If you're just superficial, you hear it and it just brushes off, goes off your back, you have no passion for obedience, guess what's happening? You are deceiving yourself into thinking that you're saved when potentially you're not saved at all. Now, if you think that's not dangerous, have somebody check your pulse. This is what James means in James 1, verse 23 and 24, when he says, For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks at his natural face in the mirror. For once he has looked at himself, he's gone away. He's immediately forgotten what kind of person he was. You see, what James is intimating is this. To have the mirror of the Word of God and not do it is to prove yourself a mere hearer of it. And hearers only will not stand justified before God. So Paul is saying then to the Jews, look, don't think that God is going to be unfair with you or that He's unfair with anybody. Don't think that. Don't attribute a lack of mercy upon God when He judges. He has given light to all men concerning Himself. They have the truth concerning Him, even those who do not have His written Word. They know of God. But don't think that just because you have the written Word of God, that somehow, because you have it, you are justified before God. Because the purpose of his law is to reveal his character, the perfection, the exacting reality that God is and his perfect standard by which no one can compare and no one can achieve righteousness by. You say, well, how do we know then? How do we know that those who don't have the written word of God, how do we know that they have a, a, a knowledge of God written upon their hearts. Maybe, maybe it isn't enough that the Bible tells us that. Perhaps you've encountered somebody like that when you've challenged them with the gospel. Maybe they've said, well, how do you know? Maybe it's not enough that the Bible simply tells us that. How are you going to answer that? Well, 
I'm going to suggest to you that you just turn to Romans chapter 2 and read verses 14 to 16. Because here's what it says. How do we know they have that? I'll show you. I'll tell you how we know. Here it is. For when the Gentiles, in this context, that's those who don't have the Word of God. For when the Gentiles, who do not have the law, do instinctively the things of the law, these not having the law are a law to themselves. In that, they show the work of the law written in their hearts. Where? Their conscience bearing witness. Their thoughts alternately accusing or defending them on that day. When according to my gospel, God will judge the secrets of men through Christ Jesus. Listen, the reason that even those without the written words are guilty on the day of judgment is because their conscience is their law. Every one of us has a conscience. Even the person who's never seen or read the Word of God, they have a conscience. And God has put on their conscience a morality. The very fact that they do things that are right and wrong, even when there is no written law of God for them to judge whether their system of right and wrong is in fact right or wrong, proves that it is written within them. In some measure it is there. They have an intuitive sense of the difference between what is right and what isn't right. And it is that sense, it is their conscience that bears witness on the day of judgment conscience. You cannot escape it. You try to escape your conscience today, it drives you nuts. It will drive you crazy. It will waste you away. And yet your conscience will be there in the day of judgment weighing on you. This is part of the thing that I think is so hellish about hell. You will never be able to escape that reality in hell. Your conscience, divinely given to you by God, will always be accusing you. You should have done it different. You can never escape. See what he says? It's the conscience. It's the conscience that accuses. Accusing and defending them. By way of their standard of morality. By your standard. Even if it's not according to the Word of God, there is that standard. And God says, okay, I'll judge according to your standard. You still fail. Conscience will accuse you because there are times when you do what is right and you do what is wrong and there are times when you do what is wrong and you claim that it's right. And you blame others for doing what is wrong when you know they're right simply because you want to view yourself to be right. All that will become clear when the secrets of men are judged. says this is what my gospel teaches this is what my gospel teaches my gospel doesn't teach that oh God's just loving and he's going to come in and don't worry about your sin go ahead and believe with words but live however you want it won't matter God's a gracious God he's just going to usher you into glory don't worry about it nope Paul says that's not what my gospel teaches according to my gospel God will judge the secrets of men through Christ Jesus. 
You see, beloved, judgment is coming. Judgment is coming. And it's coming through Jesus Christ. And so we must not forget that Paul is not speaking about how someone is saved here. In chapter 2, Paul's not dealing with the salvation issue. He's dealing with judgment. The issue of how to get saved, that's coming. Paul's going to get you there, but you've got to be lost first. This is simply about how and why someone is judged. The guilty Gentiles are always guilty because God's given them the standard. The Jew, the moral person who has this, this right and wrong above everybody else, and especially those who have the written Word of God, you're even more culpable before God. how and why we're judged. Paul's going to get even into more detail about that beginning in verse 17. Because now he, it's as if Paul's just, just continuing to turn the light up on his brothers and sisters in his national heritage. Because first he talked in general in chapter 1, all men. God's wrath is against all men. And somebody could say, well, I'm not part of that because I have the Word of God because I'm a morally good person. And now Paul gets to chapter 2. Therefore, you are without excuse because you pass judgment on other people. There's a standard of right and wrong that you have. But what about those people who don't have the Word of God? And what about us? Aren't we a special people? Paul says, no. Listen. There's no partiality with God. No partiality. You're going to be judged according to the understanding you have of God. And if you have the Word of God, you're even more culpable and if you have the name Jew, then you're really in trouble. Now you're really in trouble. He's going to get into that in verse 17 through the end of the chapter. Wow. Wow, this is really easy stuff, isn't it? Our God is so gracious. So gracious that he judges us according to what he has given us and he has told us about Jesus Christ, hasn't he? We have been given the privilege to believe. It's my hope that we would believe. Justification is not by works. Justification does not come from owning one of these. Justification comes as a gift of God through Jesus Christ alone. You pray with me. Father, we are grateful that we have your word. How frightening it is, Lord, even as I speak. The challenge to my own heart of knowing that every single detail you will hold accountable. And oh, how often I fail. Father, I run to your mercy. I run to your grace. Thank you for your faithfulness and forgiveness when we are confessing, as 1 John 1 9 says. Father, draw us to confession. Help us see the kindness of your mercy, the patience that you have toward us. There's a love for us, not for license, but for confession. To go before you and to confess our sins that we might indeed know the beauty of being forgiven by you and then be renewed in walking in obedience by faith. Thank you for these things, Lord, of seeing what judgment will be like that we might run from it.
that we might see the world as those under the hand of judgment so that we might tell them about Jesus Christ. Oh, give us the eyes of Christ for the lost. Cause us to revel in the wonder of your grace and mercy upon us that we might tell others of the same thing. And we'll praise you from this day forth until the very end of all eternity, which will never end. For our Savior, Jesus Christ, your Son, in whose name we pray, amen.